This is the Untamed Ethos Podcast. Join us as investment pros, executives, and other experts talk business, personal growth, investing, politics, and the trending topics well-rounded pros need to know about. Authentic, unfiltered, and fun. Joshua Wilson is the founder of United Ethos Wealth Partners, a registered investment advisor. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of United Ethos's investment advice on this podcast, and nothing you'll hear on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. All opinions expressed by Joshua and by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of United Ethos or its affiliates. Welcome back to Untamed Ethos. I'm Joshua Wilson, and today I have with me Dr. Vix, Russell Rhodes, who I already have ranting <laughs> this morning before we can even get get the recorder started. Russell, what what has you on the uh, well, and, and I think I, I think I got you a little uh, little rattled too. So I got to oh aim blame it on you. <laughs> goodness, who is this guy? I always heard he was so nice. Uh, <laughs> no, and I in in this is not it, it, it's it. It's apolitical and anything else, but, uh, you know, running through my Twitter stream, which is my main news source, I saw where the first lady had made the, uh, and honestly, I didn't believe it when I first saw it, was that she wanted to invite both the winning and losing teams from the women's uh, NCAA championship. I believe LSU, which a big portion of the Rhodes family went to LSU. So um, I guess I'm happy about that. I didn't realize that they had won that. Uh, but she wants to invite both LSU and Iowa to the White House, and Iowa was the losing team, uh, which I, I think is you know almost comical because in the previous administration, teams just said they didn't want to come. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so maybe you know maybe instead of uh, just you know maybe they should just have like you know they do that uh, that egg roll, which I've never understood the Easter egg the lawn Easter egg roll thing. Maybe they should just at the very end of the basketball season invite all Division One basketball players that want to come to hang out at the White House for you know a few minutes and let them let them take a little medallion or a pen that says whatever the president's name is so they get a little pseudo participation trophy they can choose to go or not go. Um, Three hundred and sixty one Division One basketball teams, you know, maybe fifteen average. But yeah, they could accommodate that, couldn't they? You know, about almost a thousand basketball. You know, all you got to do is make a team. Well, I think that's a I think that's a a, a personal right too to be able to visit yeah. the, high, the, high, the the White House. Oh, yeah. yeah, have you ever done that? Been to the White House? Yeah, um, I've never toured the White House. I've I've been been briefly, but never <laughs> never done the tour. We uh, I did it with my my kids when they were a little bit younger. Um, probably do it again because one of my kids just decided she's going to go to college and um, go to college in D.C. But while we were walking through, we saw a very, a very, the kind of guy that you want to have your back in an alley fight, just basically with a, and I'm not a, I'm not a gun person, but let's just say it looked like it was an AK-47 to me, um, uh, basically walk into a wall where there was a hidden door. Like, I just, you know, down the hallway, all of a sudden, you know, the, you can push on the, you know, where you ha- where, where we both have our hidden bars that nobody knows about in our office. We just popped the thing out, and a guy just disappeared in there. I'm like, wow, they're that. And it was when Obama was president, and their dog was just sitting out on the back lawn, just staring off into space. That that's all I remember about about the White House tour. Uh, but the, it, you know, everybody's just jumping on her about the whole participation trophy thing, and and yeah, I I, I think that's taking it to a bit of an extreme. 
And honestly, I think she probably was just like, this was such a good game. This was so entertaining. I'd like to treat both teams. I don't think she was, you know. It, I'd imagine that the whole Caitlin Clark thing. Have you, have you seen this girl, Caitlin? I think it's Caitlin. Caitlin Clark for Iowa. Yeah, she's supposed to be super popular. She's, and, she's apparently like a generational talent or something. She's, yeah. I, I yeah. saw some of her highlights. Maybe, again, just highlights. But it was well, a lot of highlights for one game. The girl was smoking. Um, yeah. So I wonder if it had something to do with. With Iowa, and especially the you know her her outstanding individual performance, I think they were favored. But anyway, they I were they were. I don't um, keep up you know with what? It. When she wins the WNBA championship, invite her to the White House. And even even fewer people will care. Though, yeah. Russell. <laughs> I don't, I don't and it, it, one of the funny things I saw was somebody said that because of her, there were um, <clears throat> the women's Final Four tickets were more expensive than the men's Final Four tickets. Uh, or some of, you know, and they showed upper deck. I don't know where they played the women's game, but I severely doubt it was in a place that seats 70,000 people like, you know, in Houston. And th that might have something to do with, you know, heaven forbid we throw supply demand in there and, and kill the feel good story. But, you know, if there's only 15,000 seats for the women's game and 70,000 for the men's. Also, I've, I've been to a basketball game in an arena like that was actually when Jordan was with the Bulls down in Atlanta. I saw them play and they played in the Georgia Dome. Um, I'll never pay. I, I wouldn't even take free tickets to sit upper deck and try to watch basketball. Yeah. That has, I think that's a, something to do with it as well. Yeah. So, so yeah, you got, you got me ranting on that. And then I, and then you got me on a rant about uh, I'm going to not, I'm, I'm going to have to start off semesters being mean to students instead of nice to students. I was trained to teach and entertain at the same time because I was trained to teach by one of the financial exchanges. And I think my undergraduate students look at me like, well, he's really nice. I'll just ask him for a better grade because I, I, I should share the number of emails I get every time there's an assignment and every time there's a quiz. Well, I, I meant to answer this. Could you, could you bump it up a little bit? I, I'm just going to have to start off next semester and just scare the crap out of them. I think that was my, I, I think I, I adjusted a little bit scarier this semester um, myself. And I don't know, it, it, it's tough to, to adjust the scariness because the, the dial, people can be very sensitive to the dial. Then all of a sudden it's too scary. And I don't know, I've, I've definitely not hit that just right. Cause I, I, I feel like that there's certain way that, that you can be lenient and thoughtful and understanding of life for a student and, also be um, thoughtful and care about the grading process. And it just, it, it can feel at times like a C plus is the bare minimum in, in, in academia. It's, it's all kind of coming up from there. And it, it I don't know, it, it can, it feels like the, just the, the, the distance you even have to be able to grade is so squished together. And the expectation of high grades is, you know, People are shocked by anything below a medium B. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. My uh, my my first quarter is teaching a graduate class um, for Kelly. Uh, I had someone that didn't do particularly well on. They did great on the group assignments and did terrible on their tests, and they were very unhappy with their grade because it was below a medium B. And I was like, I didn't realize grade inflation had gotten that bad, but. If you flunk all the tests in a class, regardless of what you do assignment wise, you know, your your 
not doing well. Yeah, well, I, I think that, that it's also surprised me how, I mean, I think we make fun of this type of stuff. You hear it kind of made fun of, but I, I assumed that it was more exaggerated than I found it to be. And that is that thinking is not really what's being emphasized. It's information. And, you know, I had an instance where I, I gave a quiz that was multiple choice and I literally used it out of the quiz bank from the book manufacturer, right? So I used their quiz bank. I eliminate all the hard questions, just use the easy and, and moderate and looked at every single question, made sure it was stuff that we had gone through in class to some extent, or at least from the big picture. But if it's not something that was stated as a fact in class is if you give a multiple choice question was, you know, which one of these does not belong? Okay, fair enough. Or what are the three, you know, of, of this? We just, just, just wrote memorization. They're, they're fine. But if it asks you to think and, and get to a question, to an, an answer, actually to think and have a thought process, it's we didn't cover this. Like, well, yep. that was oh, in, yeah. you know, it's, and it's, it doesn't matter if it was in the reading. It doesn't matter if it was assigned. It was, you did not say this out loud. You did not say that this was a fact. Well, this is not a fact. I'm not testing you on facts. You've already been tested on the facts. This is applying the facts. And then we're trying to don't even think about integrating the information into other bodies of knowledge. It's just one little thing and root, root memorization. And wow, I was shocked. I, I've, I've experienced the exact same. I actually had a, uh, a an assignment recently where I did, it was like two chapters was going to be the lecture for the week, and I didn't get to the end of the second chapter, and there was a question related to it, and somebody even wrote on their homework, you didn't cover this in class. I, and, now, I, I, and, and I was just, I just counted it off and didn't even, didn't even acknowledge it. But, you know, you do have, you know, a, a very expensive textbook, man, you and I got to write a textbook, a uh, very expensive textbook that you could have just, you know, looked the answer up. Heck, you could have just Googled something about it, but instead you didn't cover this in class. Um, oh, well, I, and I love the, uh, you know, give me the term. I, I, I had a question about bond immunization and I said, you know, what, what is the term for uh, trying to, you know, hedge out all your risk through matching the different risk factors in a bond portfolio or something like that. Uh, what is that term and can you define it? And 90% of the students just wrote the term with no definition or no examples. So most of the, you know, give me an example of a defensive stock and a cyclical stock and, you know, definitions from Investopia and no, um, no, uh, no examples. And I know, I, but I got to share this one with you uh, when I, at a previous school, and then we'll get into the stuff that people care about. Uh, at a previous school, I, I did a, in the derivatives class, I did a section on VIX and I know a thing or two about VIX. Um, and there was a homework question on it. The about two thirds of the students used something from Investopedia uh, about VIX. And it was two versions of how VIX was calculated ago. It was really stale. And there's no way that, you know, that, that's how I figured out where it came from. 
But you want to know the best part of them using that? Guess who wrote that for Investopedia? Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was something that I that you know they they wanted a good Sibo wanted to make sure there was a good definition on there, so I I you know just stepped up and did it real quick. So you were you were you were right on target fifteen years ago when you wrote. Yeah, it, it was it, actually it was it would it talked about the S and P one hundred options, which yeah. I you know none of my students would have known what that was, but when I saw that I. I went, I, that's when I went from nice to mean very quickly. You know, this is a topic that your professor cares the most about and you guys are half at, you know. Yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. Kids today. Thank God. Kids. They're not going <laughs> to steal our jobs. <laughs> our jobs. That's, the, that's the most important thing. And so there. We'll have, we'll have to develop our own little um, uh, section for Russell's rants and Russell. <laughs> We go, we could get going. It just uh, rolls off the tongue a little bit more than Joshua's rants. Um, right. So, well, let's, Joshua, uh, Joshua's juggernauts. Exactly. Let's talk let's about so let's talk about markets. Um, you know, I think you've you've been long Nasdaq for for quite some time now, and I know you're always looking at the Nasdaq still still strong. We've had bad numbers economically coming out. What's it going to take to make stocks go down, man? Well, I mean, goodness gracious, we're we're speaking, and and I think that it, it's important to give some context around the date that we're talking. Uh, we're talking Tuesday, April fourth, in the morning. Uh, if if anybody remembers, over the previous weekend, OPEC Plus did some surprise cuts, which which then Sunday night rolls around, and those of us that are overly focused on the markets tend to check in on the futures markets, which open 5 a.m. or 5 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Uh, Eastern. And so I, I open up my broker's account and I see that oil is up from the mid 70s to over 80. And the NASDAQ futures, which I basically had owned and rolled once, um, were down slightly. And I'm like, man, this is going to th this is really bad. It's could be a next round of inflation. I'm going to have an opportunity to take my position off. And I did take my position off. And I'm like, you know what? This should be really bad. I'm going to go short. <laughs> so I flipped over to short Sunday night. And then when I came in Monday morning, we basically were unchanged from where we had been Sunday night. And I'm like, well, for one reason or another, the market's blowing this off. And then yesterday, Monday, in addition to you know, what should have been kind of frightening for the stock market, and maybe if they had made that announcement midday on a Tuesday, it would have had a, got a better reaction. Then uh, and, you know, at times OPEC doesn't have the best of credibility where they make these announcements and then everybody cheats and still, you know, that we're going to cut one point five million barrels a day. And in reality, we find out that that only three hundred thousand was cut. Maybe that's an assumption that the market's taking into play as well. But then we got a, a couple of weak economic numbers on Monday which didn't do a whole lot to push the market down as well. I think we got PMI, which was b below 50, which means contraction. And um, and also it was lower than expected. Uh, I think factory orders came in slightly negative and that was lower than, I think it flat was the expectation. Uh, but switching over to the academic stuff, uh, I've been teaching the teaching macroeconomic stuff and, and how that relates to the overall markets. And typically when the economy is bottoming out and maybe starting to recover, um, that's that's when you want to own technology stocks. And this technology stock outperformance that we're seeing relative to the S&P 500 for the first quarter 
leads me to believe that the the worst may be behind us as far as or it might be occurring right now and you know investors are getting ahead of it by getting long technology which will outperform during a recovery and the the first quarter outperformance for for the Nasdaq versus the S&P 500 that was the biggest quarterly outperformance in 14 years i did quick math there uh, in 14 years and the last time that happened was the first quarter of 2009 and anybody that is over 25 years well i guess over 30 years old and was paying attention to the markets back then may remember that the last three quarters of 2009 uh, once we got the great financial crisis behind us were nothing but a rip to the upside like uh, you'll, you'll hear people talk about a melt up i think that was a nine month melt up where the s p was up almost 50 percent from late march to the end of 2009 uh, we just we just saw something kind of similar where there's still bad news out there. People still worried about the markets, but um, it, it it just doesn't seem like anything's pushing the stocks lower. Hmm. There there was a rant. Wow. <laughs> so I'll let you talk now. Nothing could put, you know, So what are you looking at? The, I mean, you're I know you're into the charts as well with with Nasdaq. We've been at some key levels recently. Are you are the charts charts? Um, strengthen your position here or are they they and this, this is kind of funny um i do write some things for and i'm trying to pull up my nasdaq chart here we, we um, were we were kind of at a, an inflection point i guess friday yeah, yeah we were and, what's what's next and i haven't I haven't checked the charts this week yet well we were at what was kind of a nasty resistance level of 12,800 and we had one two three four five six days where it was very where the the nasdaq would go above it and then come back below that that resistance level uh i wrote an article for nasdaq on some smart option trades that were taking advantage of that resistance and i think between when i sent it off to the folks there and it got on the website um the nasdaq 100 climbed up to about thirteen thousand. <laughs> so it was in and, and typically when when we get a solid breakthrough resistance like that um, that that means we're we're off to the races on another leg up, and that seems to be where we are right now. Although we're having a heck of a time with a with a new level of about thirteen thousand two hundred. Uh, but yeah, the last week it, it looked like maybe and maybe we we're going to top out for the near term. And you know, a twenty percent quarter out of NDX that that that's uh, possibly getting ahead of itself. So looking at all those things, I thought maybe we were going to pause. We didn't pause. And that's uh, a main lesson there is when the trend is going, you know, you, you don't want to try to fade a trend. And I decided to try and fade a trend. Luckily, when I what, what I wrote up were very risk controlled positions, which is uh, selling some call spreads against the, uh, the NDX, which worked for several days. And then when it didn't work, it, it, if instead of being short, you had put on a bearish option spread, uh, at least you have your defined risk, which I do think for counter trend trading is extremely important. Looks like your nine day average on NDX is starting to turn down a bit. Well, the 20 days still still up on that on those short term trends. So we got uh, if, if you look at if you start to look at NDX and you look at the 50 versus the 200 day moving average, the it, it's it's like if I if I ever wrote a book on candlesticks, uh, the and and talk about how you should combine them with moving averages uh back what date is that 
back on uh, actually March 13th. Uh, we got a nice 50-day uh, finally moved above the 200-day uh, close just above the 200-day. Uh, I didn't. I did not see that at the time. Monday morning quarterbacking is great, is it not? Um, but it, it looked like it gave us a uh, gave us you know gave you a nice entry signal for people that pay very close attention. So, so are you calling I, are you calling April to be be to be a big winner then? What do you think? Um, I, I'll I, April will be a big winner, but I'll tell you the things that that would change my mind from right now going forward. Uh, first off, I, I want to see how the uh, employment number comes on Friday, and we do need to talk a bit more about that. So I'm going to push that one to the side for a second. But then we're going to get toward the end of April, uh, we'll start to get first quarter earnings results. And I don't expect companies' numbers to be very good. And I, 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 I severely doubt that I'm alone on that one. We're all going to care about what management what management thinks is going to happen in you know the second half of 2023 or going forward through 2024. So, I, I, and and in reality, if you, you know, new newbies to trading stocks will see on CNBC that you know XYZ beat analyst expectations by you know a dime or whatever, and the stock trades off. Well, the reason the stock may have traded off is because in reality, everybody was expecting a 15 cent beat or yeah, it, it's the, you know, it's the, the, the expectation versus um, what, act, what, what you end up hearing from. The and, we, and we companies. keep adjusting expectations, of course. Yeah. Well, so. so I, and, and typically it really is. And, and this is something that I try to get across to the undergrads. You don't buy a stock because of what they've done. You buy a stock because of what you think they're going to do. And I think the uh, the the earnings calls are going to be much more important than the actual number results. We you may you may have some some very perplexed folks on on some of the business networks saying things like you know stocks keep going up even though we've got this awful earnings season. Well, the way I judge um, whether or not a company had a good earnings result, I look at how their stock reacts historically. Uh, you know, like what's an average, what's the absolute average of a move up or down? And if they move up more than that average move, that was a good report. If they move down more than the average move, that's a bad report. And then if they fall in the middle, you know, it's just kind of kind of noise more than anything else. So I think the stock price reaction uh, relative to how the stock normally behaves around earnings is a much, much more important thing to look at, has a lot more information in it than uh you know company earned 23 cents everybody was expecting 21 cents and it's all comes down to the what, what you want to control a stock for you know do you want to control it for market movement and just the systematic risk do you want to control it for um, relative industry group do you want to control it for relative to um, others in its um in its classification as a dividend or a growth stock yeah. and all yeah. of these different choices is are are choices that you're making. And I think that's the important thing to understand is whether you you're consciously making the choice or accidentally making a choice, you are making a choice when you choose what to compare it to. And if you're just looking at the binary as how did it react, that's not telling you how it reacts compared to itself, compared to its peers, and and also comparably in this market. 
you know, there's an infinite amount of adjustments that one can do in order to get a, the most accurate picture of these things. And where it kind of comes down to for the analyst is at what point is this too much work? It's one of the things that you and I talk about a lot when talking about the analytical stuff is at what point is the amount of work going into this decision and this viewpoint exceeding what additionally how the, the, the incremental value of, of putting the thought into it. No, absolutely. And uh, I, again, I, I, I just, I, I think sometimes we care more about the current numbers, but very often we care more about, um, you know, what, what the company's going to do. And we should care more about what the company's going to do. Uh, if a company has record earnings, but says, but we've got some major manufacturing problems and we're going to have a bad, you know, next quarter is going to be awful. Uh, nobody's going to care that that number was really good. Yeah. Well, you, when you, you talk about caring more about the company, you know, that's an interesting thought to think about right now during this kind of what seems like a change in almost like a regime change where I'm, and I guess I'm really back, back, you know, stepping into this other line of discussion with you today is I feel like it's almost a regime change where the market's been designed for indexing to work. It's been it's been designed for us to not think so much about the company name and the, and the most popular. Uh, the the pop culture message has been uh, just index, just buy the market, never touch it, and sixty forty and buy bonds, buy stocks. We say they diversify, but you know the interest rates being low is good for has been good for bonds and for stocks you know it's the, the macro environment has been great for both of them and it feels to me like we're getting more and more into an active management market where there's um you know the tides don't just naturally carry everyone up and therefore easy money free money everybody's kind of um guided upward both bonds and stocks it seems like we're getting into a market where some of this, what's, what has now become the automatic message for new folks in finance, which is just index and buy the lowest cost thing you can buy and never sell it. It seems like that wisdom now that it's become so prominent is getting ready potentially to be less broadly wise. Uh, that's and that that is very much of a possibility, and and we go through periods where I, I'm going to use another trader term here. Uh, you go, we go through these periods where we have stock pickers markets, and then we have periods where uh, it doesn't matter what you own, you're going to look smart. Um, you know, I think the the first quarter of this year was probably uh, doesn't really matter you know, too much what you own, you're going to look okay, smart as long as you're you're kind of hugging the index, but. Um, yeah, we'll see if that if that holds up for the balance of the year, where you do actually have to start uh, doing a little bit of analysis if you're going to try to put up any in, uh, outperformance whatsoever. Uh, but more and more people do uh, do say that you should just uh, index and go. And I even I tell students that I tell my business students that that if you uh, if you're basically uh, don't want to spend the time analyzing companies, but you want exposure to the stock market. Buy an index fund. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. One of the things I really that really bothers me is forgetting about the nuance in investing and people wanting rules of thumb. I think that a rule of thumb is, by definition, um, not going to fit my thumb very well. 
uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's what, how can we speak to the broadest amount of people? That's what a rule of thumb is, is how do I make this decent for everyone? Just everybody I can think of in all of their levels of investing knowledge, all of their, all of their ability to take risk, all of their willingness to take risk, all of these things and dumb it down to one rule. And that, that, I get it. it is if I had to pick one person at random and give them advice and I had not, and I have I don't know anything about them. There's certain, there, there's advice that I would, if I was to pull advice out of a hat, I would use that advice, just buy an index and, and leave it. If I, if I don't know anything about someone, I have to give advice. It would be something like that. Right. Whereas the more nuance that I'm able to get into, um, the more, the more likely I am to say, Hey, we're, we're starting here, but we need to adjust and we should because of these factors, because you're at a point where the nuance really does matter. And, you know, what works 60% of the time ish for 60% of people good enough doesn't mean that's what's right for you. Um, so I, I sent you a link. People can't see, but there's a little chat in there. Um, Standard Poor's puts out this thing. I don't, I've forgotten what SPIVA stands for, but basically they look at active managers and they, they tell you what percentage of active managers have outperformed or underperformed uh, their different benchmarks over the past year. And it's, it's all, of, and basically it's framed around the active versus pa passive debate. They've been doing this for, I think this is the 21st year they've done it. Um, Last year, just and I'm not going to go through a whole bunch of them, but this kind of matches up with what you were just saying. Uh, last year, uh, only 51% of, and I say only, only 51% of large cap equity funds, actively managed large cap equity funds, underperformed the S&P 500. That was only 51% last year. The year before, it was 85%. So... You know, that, that means that 49% were able to pick stocks effectively and outperform one way or another. Uh, typically, that average numbers, typically that numbers in the mid 60s to low 70s. Yeah. And by the way, this is one of the things I think is kind of funny about numbers is uh, it, I've heard many people position this as, you know, oh, at, at the best of times, you know, 2007, 40, you know, only 55, only 45%, uh, sorry. 45% or sorry, 55% were able to beat their index. So that's, that's a great, on, on a great year, a little over half beat the index. I'm like, well, hold on. I would expect from by definition that it would be about 50 just if, if, if thing, if, if, if situations were neutral, because if half are, half are beating, half are below, it's not zero versus a hundred. To me, it's deviation from 50 that really matters. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so we, 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 we personify this yeah. often as, oh, it's so high. It's never more than 55. It's never more than 45. Yeah, but 50 is kind of your your pivot point because it's either half or below, half 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 above. It's one of those weird things. It's kind of the the crazy things that people hear from wholesalers uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it seem to pick up. And the wholesalers pick it up from their training and repeat it over and over again until somebody calls them on it. Yeah. So, the big picture. Was, I, I think wasn't very nice. But I'm just not nice today. You're more. You're more fun that way. Take it. Take, uh, take a stance. Take a stance. Depends um, on depends on your role. With you, you find me more fun. 
Well, I guess um, that's true. I guess yeah, that's we'll, true. we'll see how class goes this afternoon. <laughs> I'll report yeah, back. With the, with, um, active managers, I guess really where I was going with that is the binary of what's right and what's wrong. gets gets kind of thrown out into here. Here's my, here's what I pound the table on with my investment philosophy. It's the only thing that, that, that works where I think that, um, advisors need to be a bit thoughtful on why, why, why I'm working this way in this particular market and, you know, be willing to, um, change their thoughts a little bit as, as things develop, you know, but I, I get it. If you're, if you're preaching introduction to finance, basic financial literacy, I think there's uh there's, there's a strong case to talk to the average, but I just think that um, a lot of folks that really have earned the place to be, to get more nuance, get so caught up in doing the, cookie cutter portfolio that they forget why they're doing it and forget the point of it. I mean, you know, one of the things that we, I just saw come back up in the news this week was, uh, was Schwab, uh, with, uh, with those portfolios that they had out that were, you know, overwhelmingly in cash, <laughs> they're advertising it as, you know, no management fee. And it's so funny to me that we still get caught up in these no management fee type things and free this. And, you know, it's, there's a quote um, that I'm sure you've heard is um, if there's some, something like if there's no fee, then you are the product. Yeah. It's if you, if you can't, if you can't figure out what the, and, and I've heard it, I've heard it more about uh, social media than anything Yeah. Yeah. Else. Social media. Yeah. But uh, no, that's absolutely true. If I, and, and you know what, uh, it, to, to take that one just a little bit of a step further and something, because again, we both deal with an awful lot of undergrads, uh, I think the majority of them that act that try to trade use Robinhood and they don't. And, and when I talk about the actual cost of trading, the bid ask spread and everything else, you know, they get these commission free trades on market orders. Well, it's not really free. You know, there's still, I mean, it's better than it was. I, I'm not going to dispute that at all, but if you, you know, in when I was with SIBO and I'd get to go to, to a lot of different trade shows, I would get, you know, that question. Well, how is it, it, it I got it about Scott Trade a lot. Well, how is Scott Trade able to charge only about 4.95 bucks? Well, because they are getting paid for your order flow as well. Uh, and so they're, you know, if if you can't figure out, you know, if if you're not paying for something um but it does involve your money, they're making they're making something off of it on the back end. You, you just you just got to know that. And there's nothing wrong with making money. It's what keeps business in line. It's just um, the do I know do, do I know why they're making money? Am I comfortable with how they're making it? Maybe it would be better for me if I I just let them make money the old fashioned way um, rather than what they're doing here. It's kind of like the restaurants that do that advertise BYOB, but then there's a ten dollar per person charge to to actually consume to actually consume what you brought. I don't have any problem. The glass with that. charge isn't there that corkage fee? Yeah, you know, and I got no problem with, with with that. But it is, it is a fee. You know, you're not you're not paying nothing. It's not free to it's not free to bring it in. Uh, but yeah, with, it, for those who haven't followed this case, uh, Schwab had these um, portfolios that were really marketed for everyone, and they were free management fees. Um, you went through a, 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 a 
risk analysis online. They put you in a portfolio and turns out that they had misled it, it, uh, clients. I mean, technically, um, I think a lot of us would have a problem that they put all this money in cash. The problem they got it they, that they got in trouble for is not that they put it in cash to begin with. It's that they misled their uh, their investors and what the purpose of this was and, and 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 how they actually made the decision of what to put it in there. If they had not, if they had better covered their bases, from what I can, what it looks like to me, that and they would have made a better case of why it was going in there, it would have been allowed. And the thing is, is and the reason it appears dirty is uh, these cash allocations that are in their their uh, sweep funds. They make a tremendous amount of money on them, more than they would make if it was in one of their ETFs. And again, they're also making money on their ETFs. You know, we act like that they're not making money on the ETFs. They are. They're making money on the ETFs. And there's nothing wrong with making money on the ETFs. It's just that we charge money here and then we advertise it's free here. But instead of even putting in their ETFs, they put it in cash so they can get a much higher spread off of that. And it didn't make sense for investors, right? But to me, the, the thing that bothers me still is if they would have worded a few things different, they'd have still got away with it. To me, which to me is not how I would, how I would, one, I believe one would operate if they were owing their client a fiduciary due. No, um, not at all. And, that's, and, it caught, uh, and it always catches up with them. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I would, I would, I think they, they, they had to pay clients 52 million. Um, because of this. And then they had punitive damages of another, you know, I don't know, 80, 85 million or something like that. You know, to Schwab, I don't know if that's exactly a, uh, yeah, it's, it's all relative, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I was, to me, that's, uh, I've never done my net worth compared to Schwab's, but to me, that's probably like a 25 cent upcharge on a, you know, on a, on a coffee. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, whatever the market, ca- what, what together that's 130 million. And, uh, I'm trying, I'm doing Schwab's market cap real quick. It's probably, it's got to, it at least has to be in the billions you would think. Um, so it was a total of 180, so it was 135 punitive. So totals 187 million, 187 million settlement. Uh, uh their market cap is 95 billion. Wow. So let's say you have. $95 in your wallet. Uh, what does that come to? About 15 cents. Wow. I think that's a good way. I mean, that, that, that's as good a perception as there can be. You know, that's that. To, to, to Charlie, that is the change that he throws in, in, you know, I don't know if they have homeless people out in San Francisco, but that is, um, you know, uh, him throwing some change in somebody's hat for the rest of us. So in the hat. So, so uh, let's talk. Let's let's talk ESG for a minute. In, in the spirit uh, of in the spirit of ranting, well, uh, I, I wanted to loop you back one okay, real quick on the employment number. I, yeah, yeah. I glossed over it, and, it, and I did want to. I, I think there's something worth uh, mentioning. So the the other thing that I'm looking at it was it was earnings, and then the employment number. Um, the employment number comes out this Friday, uh, April seventh, and the. U.S. stock markets are closed. The futures markets are open. And and I know th- this has never happened to me, but I know like somebody that traded bond futures that absolutely got run over on both sides 
by all the volatility that was associated because not everybody was trading the the morning of um, you know the last time this was I think this was a decade ago when this happened to this guy um, but you know every four or six years depending on where we are on the calendar Good Friday which is a market holiday but not a U.S. government holiday. Um, we end up getting a very significant economic number, probably more so right now on a Good Friday holiday than than there is in memory. And you don't have a whole, t you can trade futures, you can trade the bond futures, you can trade the S&P 500 futures. The E-mini S&P futures are gonna be open until uh, 9.15 Eastern time. So the employment number comes out at 8.30 and those futures are gonna only be open for 45 minutes. Uh, I, I will guarantee you, there will be people that get stuck in an E-mini e futures position over the weekend that they don't want because they didn't realize the market was going to, it wasn't a normal trading day. Um, it's, it, it, for me, and, and you and I talked about this ahead of time, my strategy is to sit on my hands and watch the fund volatility. I, I just, I, I would not want to be involved in when there's not a whole lot of market liquidity on a kind of a key number like this that's coming out this Friday. Yeah, a lot of wonky things in this technical term, by the way, is wonky. Yeah. Uh, a lot of wonky things happen <laughs> around around holidays often. And plus, you've got the, you know, it's not just the, the Good Friday. Um, I don't know if this impacts it, but obviously we're stepping into, I guess, tomorrow starts Passover week. Will that, will that tend to impact volumes as well, even on Wednesday and Thursday? Oh, yeah, it, it will. There, um, that, that, that holiday will... Um, definitely uh, impact the number of people that, that are at work. So it might be kind of a, you know, it, it might be a more volatile week as we go along through the end of this week. If, if you got fewer people at their screens reacting to what's going on. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm not going to let a whole lot of noise this week get into my head. I'm just going to kind of like do a lot of watching and, and not, not, you know, not allow if it, Kind of like I talked about on, on Sunday night to Monday morning this past week. Uh, I, I saw a couple of things. The market didn't react the way that I thought they should, that it should. And I just you know went back to the status quo on, on the positions that I had because nothing has truly fundamentally changed. Also, oil is not open on, on the employment day. <laughs> um, it's, it's just a handful of financial futures that will be open. Well, let's uh, let's talk about ESG. Um, I'd sent you a video on where uh, Buffett uh, was asked if diversity was considered when hiring for leadership in board positions, and he said, "Frankly, no." Um, he, he he wants the best person in the place. Yeah, that's what. And what's wrong and with I that? Can, well, and I can understand one. And in fact, uh, well, first off, I'm going to back up. ESG is not green investing. Some of it is, but not all of it is. That G is governance. And, and when he talks about uh, the composition of a board, uh, he's, th th part of it would be social, and, and, and I think a more important part of it would be governance. Because the board of directors of a public company really is supposed to be uh, overseeing that company on your behalf as a shareholder. And I do think that you probably, you, you want people with a lot of different experience and perspectives. I understand that as far as the diversity on a board would go, but you also want to make sure that the people on the board have a strong understanding of the business of the company that um, you know, they are overseeing. 
Uh, you don't want a bunch of people on the board of, I'll say the New York Stock Exchange. You don't want a whole lot of people that have no experience whatsoever, or really know anything about stocks at all. Uh, they need to understand the core business. So I would be more interested in, and what was his, uh, what was his statement behind it? Uh, he, he just said he doesn't consider diversity. I, I mean, I really think that in a key position that is very important when you have a handful of people representing millions of shareholders, that you want by far the best qualified people in that spot and the best mix of people as well. Uh, so, you know, if you if, if you've got nobody that's ever been an auditor on your board and you got a couple of slots, you'd, I don't I don't care if they're you know, I, I don't I don't you know, I don't care too much about their background. What I do care about is you, you got to get an auditor on that board that understands the numbers because uh, the board has some responsibility around the numbers that are reported by companies now. And you need somebody that, that can ask the difficult questions on that board. So I'd be more interested in, in you know, if you're, if you're putting together, it, you know, it, it's now free agent season in NCAA basketball. If you, you know, if you, if, if you don't have anybody on your team over six foot nine and a guy that's seven one goes into the transfer por portal, you're going after him because that's a hole that you got to fill. And I think on the governance side, that's, that's really to be the primary concern as well. Uh, but across the board, and you and I have talked about this offline, the, uh, the whole ESG thing, I really consider, I, I understand we're not here to tear up the planet. We really shouldn't be here to tear up the planet, but at the same time, um, you know, it, we, we're supposed to be, uh, investing people's money, uh, you know, as, as investment managers and not in doing no harm, you know, back when I was in college, we didn't get participation trophies. And also we learned that the purpose of a public company was to increase shareholder value. And we've added to that since I, um, was an undergrad. Now I teach undergrads and now the second line is, and do no harm. And I think that, you know, that, that should be included in investing as well. But, you know, there are certain companies that are in certain industries that, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, are kind of dirty company, dirty industries. And if you're looking at ESG investing, I think one of the better, better ways to go about doing it, and, and you got to believe the scores and we'll get into that. But if you, if, if you, you know, if, if you really want to do the best service for your investors as a manager, uh, you're going to want to use some sort of methodology that takes a look at the best oil companies within the oil industry and just doesn't avoid oil, et cetera. Um, yeah, there, there's a reality to, um, you know, to investing and there's a reality to how important your personal portfolio is to basically your quality of life. Uh, it's yeah. And, and I'm sure if I were debating this one right now, somebody would say, yeah, but what if we ruin the planet and you have no life? I understand that. But uh, I just think of ESG as kind of a nice to have and not a have to have in the investing world. Yeah, I, I, I'll say this, man. It, it, is, it, is, it is just a stick the word planet in there. And now you're immune from from negativity is what it feels like. Yeah. You know, like, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm pro earth, I'm pro preservation, this stuff, but it becomes a, a way to exclude certain things based on political motivations. And, you know, like you said, with the, with the oil companies, you know, well, can we, can we encourage 
people to do better without saying we, that, that oil is bad or whatever. You know, you're also choosing to highlight it's, it's, it is one group of people basically with the same motivations, the same agendas, looking to highlight the negatives of one thing and only the positives of the other. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, the, some of the very company, this gets into how are we just deciding what meets our standards? Well, you, everybody just creates their own standard that of course they grade very, very highly on where, you know, you look at the impact of, you know, electric batteries and things like that on the planet and on local populations that are in charge of doing the mining and things like that. And it's, absolutely atrocious and it's amazing that we can have um we can have conversations about people being at disadvantaged populations and yet we're completely exploiting people in order to drive green investing in order to get into um you know electric batteries and things like that some of the worst conditions like debatable i know that people will say is it really slavery I think it's very difficult to debate in some areas that's not slavery in some of these places where people are mining these 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 materials. Other places, I get it's complicated and is it really slavery? I don't know. I'm not going to jump into that debate. I'm just saying that it's it's the things that you choose to leave out of in order to call it ESG friendly is a very political choice and it says something about your politics. So it, it says something about who you support. You know, your idea of environmental, your idea of social, you know, your idea of governance, you know, and the social stuff, especially is what kind of comes down into here is that's the social is political agenda. That's all it is. It is who, who, whose team are you on here? And, and unfortunately you can just, you can miss you. And this is what I know this is what you're saying. You can misuse that ESG stuff. You can, you know, um, Kind of like uh, you can you can use your political position for power. Uh, you can maybe use uh, ESG to force a company to do things that they really don't want to do if if you're loud enough. Yeah, and and, and especially when 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 you're when you're making a decision to be yourself, you're making a decision to say, "Here's what we stand for," and our investors can decide for themselves whether this is something that meets their values or not. Um, it's one of the big problems I have with a lot of companies is they're now telling their employees, this is what we stand for. And more people, individuals, as they, as they see what these corporations are doing, you know, and I, I look at this from, from the banking standpoint, is the big banks, the big wirehouses, it's all ESG or woke, or this is what we believe, this is how we are you know, for our social, our social this. And Everyone doesn't agree with that. And I believe that there are, are a big portion of people in the, in, in the, in the world, in the United States, um, who are fine with other people living their way and doing their way of business. And it's like, hey, leave me alone. I don't care. Do whatever you want. I'm not trying to keep anybody from anything. It's just don't push that on me and tell me that my way of investing is somehow wrong or bad. Um, if you want to invest that way, great. But you're creating this agenda to keep other people out and to punish others by by creating a definition that works for you and your political agenda. That's what it is. And and if from the, just looping back to the investment side, uh, and uh, that that number that I cited there, where uh, last year it was about fifty fifty, which is a really you know of of large cap uh, domestic equity funds uh, about. 49% under outperformed and 51% underperformed, 
without looking at any data whatsoever, I will guarantee you that every single fund that outperformed owned energy because energy kicked butt in 2022. And there's no way that you you could have, uh, I mean, maybe, I, you know, I say, if you're a pure long manager without leverage, without options, all that other kind of stuff, uh, if you're just like a old school stock picker, if you didn't have energy in your portfolio in 2022, you're one of the 51% that underperformed. You have to be, because that was the sector that carried a lot of folks. And, and I think 2022 was a great example. A lot of other stuff was going on, and we don't pay as, as much attention to ESG when a lot of other stuff is going on. But 2022 is a really good example of um, how what what ESG can cost you if you overly focus on it in your portfolio. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that this comes down to also, you know, what what is hidden in words. You know, when we think and ESG, we tend to think environmental. When we hear diversity, we hear, I hear nothing but good with, with a more diversity. But then under this is is typically included the assumption of equity. And that's a much, that's, you know, the, the idea of, of equity is much more controversial um, and it's much more politically charged. And when you bring this idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion under ESG, which is what it becomes, it's uh, under, under that social, social has become code for um, um, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, where, you know, diversity is not where you scan at the beginning because when you're building a team, when you're building a team, diversity matters, but it's not where you start because you start for a common goal. If I'm building a football team or a basketball team, I start out with, okay, here's, here's how we're going to do things. Here's the things that we value. Here's our ultimate goal. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's the here's our way of doing things, our offense, our defense, and then I try to build a team according to the strengths that we already have. I've already got a great offensive line, but I need a quarterback. You know, I'm looking at the, the, the their strengths, their skills, their qualifications. We start with that. Then, when you have that, there comes a point where then diversity, you match for sameness, for sameness in goal for sameness in the, the, the way that skills work together. Diversity adds a depth to a company that it doesn't have if, it's, if, it, if everything is conformed. But the interesting thing is, is when we think about diversity, we're really pushing for a diversity of in, in the, in the super, most superficial things, but conformity in the ideal, in the, in, in, with, an ideal, with an ideology. A conformity in the ideology but a, an illusion of diversity based on exterior things. That diversity adds depth, but we first need to make sure that we've accomplished the goal and set up the team correctly according to the, to the objects that will make us a successful company. If those are in place, then yes, diversity will enhance this and will add depth on many levels, but it doesn't replace skills. It doesn't replace the ability to do the work and the ability to have a unified common vision. Absolutely. And, um, you know, that's, you, you want to start with the, the best people and, and hope, you know, and, and hope that you're doing all of the right things. Uh, when, when ESG, you know, the social part of it, uh, and, and I did work, but I actually helped create, and I'm not going to say which ones, but I actually helped create some ESG indexes. 
or indices. And um, <clears throat> on the social side, uh, and this was just five years ago, but a lot of things has changed in the last five years. Uh, the what we were what we were looking at was uh, how is the company as a corporate citizen? Uh, are they doing things you know charitable? Do they you know the, the do they at SIBO? We would have uh, kids from an inner city school come in and we would w do their homework with them once a week. You know, that's the kind of social stuff that I think companies should be doing. To that, That's what I think of when I think of social is, you know, how are you, uh, you know, as a because corporations supposedly uh, are kind of like people uh, as, uh, as far as legally goes. You know, how how are they as people? Are they donating to the community that they operate in? Are they, you know. You know, sponsoring things that aren't necessarily, uh, you know, not not like sponsoring a golf tournament, but more like sponsoring something that uh, is helping out people as opposed to supposedly bringing you positive attention, uh, as a, as opposed to the social part being, um, you know, how much how much uh, diversity training do we offer every year? Uh, I personally think as adults we should kind of know how to behave and respect each other right off the bat without somebody telling me how to behave and respect each other. Um, you know, I've, I've worked for 30 plus years and I've never gotten in trouble for uh, offending somebody else. Amazing kind of, but offending somebody else at work or anything like that. Uh, because, you know, I know how to act. The whole idea of being offended is, is, is kind of a thing too. I mean, I, I, I get that there is a, a point where one can go too far. Obviously I uh, regret that there are, I don't know. I, I, I've been, you know, I'm a millennial, barely. I'm an elder millennial, so I've been raised in the, I guess, partially in in the the new world, if you will. But I guess I, the the thing that ends up bothering me is why is everyone responsible for how I feel all the time? Why should my company be liable for how all their employees feel, and there they've therefore they've got to police me? And why are how are words now violence? Um, you know, I, I want my employees to have um, a relaxed time. I want them to be happy with the people around them, but I don't guarantee them happiness. I can't guarantee them be un, you know uh, never be offended by anyone, and I, I shouldn't have a final say over what people say and how they say it just because I'm an employer, because I'm uh, providing a job. Um, I think that we get dangerous into make in, into people feeling like they're silenced if they don't agree with their employer, um, that they're going to be punished at the at the at work or potentially lose their job, be canceled to some extent because they don't want to drink the Kool Aid in every way. And yeah, you know, there's always politics at places that you work. There was a uh, I. I, I there's a, a thing that I used to, to that I took from a church sermon that that I would apply when I was uh, help when I was teaching interns at SIBO. That was one of my duties there was teaching the intern class, and it was uh, you know if you want to get along you have to go along. I think is what the whole sermon was about. But it was you know you you just uh, you know everybody you need to get along with everybody the best you can. Uh, and uh, treat them like you would want them to treat you, regardless of of what you know what their lives are like outside of work. But I, I feel like the work environment is an area that you it, it it should be separate from the rest of your life in a roundabout way. I mean, we define ourselves by what we do professionally, 
but you know uh, the really important stuff can often be what we do outside of work and you know how i choose to live my life is really nobody's business where i work yeah i agree it just um i think that there's a line between requiring people to pretend to be someone else or conform where it's you don't have to be antagonistic to just be yourself you don't have to antagonize others to be yourself i don't need to um you know be plot proselytizing at work because i'm a christian but i i have my cross in the background because it means something to me um, I'm not going to hide those things either, you know? And so I think that there's room for people to not have things be assumed about them. Um, how do I say this? Be assumed about them or that they have, they're assumed to have to go along with things and act according to a certain standard that goes against how they feel at home. Because they're because they're trying to maintain their maintain their jobs. I think this is going to happen a lot with financial advisors. It's one of the things that I I'm passionate about myself. Is a lot of firms are they manage to the lowest common denominator. It's this is this is what the social this is our social stance now. This is what we say. This is what we do. This is what advisors can say. This is what advisors can do. And I think that there's room in there for a firm to be able to say, hey, we'll speak for ourselves. Our, our our brass can speak for themselves. The CEO can speak for himself. They can speak whatever. The firm is going to speak for clients. <laughs> and we're going to generally have general things that we support, whether it's charity or whatever. Great. But we'll allow our employees to be themselves without being penalized for not singing in the, in the, in the company's social agenda choir. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow, we went off on a complete tangent on that one. Thank you, Mr. Buffett, for <laughs> for planning ESG, that one. ESG, a topic yeah. for for today, largely. Um, Russell, what else do we have to discuss today? Um, I think we, I mean, we we hit on the ESG. We hit on Nasdaq outperforming. Uh, we talked about um, how we all shouldn't get participation trophies anymore. Uh, I mentioned in passing. The uh, you and I debated toward the end last week a little bit about uh, how the transfer portal was impacting Division One sports, and I got a new stat for you. I'm gonna throw one at you that I, I love doing unprepared things. Or actually, I'm gonna okay. What percentage of and this is near and dear to your heart? Division One college football players uh, have put into the transfer portal and not found another school to play at. I would say. A, so I'd say seventy five percent. Oh no, it's only forty percent. Don't they? They don't get another scholarship, but that also means they ain't going to school anymore. Uh, so uh, the transfer, it 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 it's sixty one percent enroll at a new school, thirty nine percent don't find don't re enroll in school at all. That's pretty bad, man. I'm surprised it's not worse. Uh, well, I just you know that's just, and everybody was being given an extra year of eligibility while this was going on. Yeah, but well, you'd be surprised how how many of them really don't want to be there at all. And if uh, if football or basketball is not working out, they they want to leave. That's been one of the surprises to me. And 
as you know, I have I have family playing right now. But um, you know, one of the surprises to me is how many of these kids really, you know, they'll do the absolute bare minimum in school because they really just want to play whatever sport that they're in, and that's it. And that's sad because there's all the other kids that want it want it bad. But you know, although it's sad that these kids are that you know. 40% or whatever, aren't find another scholarship. It's, I don't see that as that big, big a deal because if you're there taking up space and there's some kid that really wants that and wants to be on the team, it's not going to be dead weight. Cause these kids, every single football team in America has dead weight on it. Oh yeah. Every yeah, single one of totally them. There's that. the kids that, you know, that peaked in high school and they, we, 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 we did, they were not, we expected they'd get better and they never did, or they were done working when they left high school, or they just are not going to adjust to the next level. They're not going to work hard again. They were a natural in high school and not going to, not going to bust their ass for three years to be average and get some playing time at college level. You know, there's the kids that, uh, you know, got recruited just because they were athletes and they're terrible, terrible humans or terrible, um, teammates. And, you know, it's like, they're taking up space while some, you know, BS studies professor, you know, pushes them through. You know, I'm, yeah. it happens. We all know what happens. You know? Yeah, I was in class at Memphis State with some of the uh, some of the basketball players. I, I, you know, one very famous one who did come to class every time. Nice. Uh, yeah. So there. Were you there with it, Penny? Were you there with Penny? Nice. Yeah, we overlapped in one class. So nice. We're buddies. We're like this. I bet you are. Uh, uh, yeah. oh, speaking speaking of you and your eternal coolness, I do have a, a story. For oh you. my gosh! So, so this weekend, I'm talking to my girlfriend, and I, for some reason, am arguing that not not that I am cool. Okay, I want to make this clear. I'm arguing about why I'm cool. For a 40 year old who fits my description is I'm, in other words, I'm saying, I'm not saying I'm super cool. I'm saying for what you know of me, okay, you know that, you know, he's an entrepreneur, you know, that he's a professor at Baylor in the business school, you know, that he's finishing a PhD um, and so on and so forth. And obviously doing this podcast with you and these are things you know, about. given those things, given those things, I'm cool. I'm cooler than you'd think I would be based on those fat, big facts that you can know about me. So I understand already I'm making a pretty modest argument, I think, is cool for a guy fitting this description. And she just says, are you, uh, are you Russell Rhodes cool? Are you, are you cool like Russell Rhodes? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I didn't know. I couldn't tell. Wait, is this... It's, am, am I some sort of weird benchmark? And is if she, so, well, first off, does she think that Russell Rhodes the, is, is super cool and I'm being like, are you as cool as him? Or is it that Russell Rhodes is a, is, is he's, he's, he's a professor at IU and he's a Vix nerd. And I didn't understand. I, I wasn't sure if, if it was, if it was a praise for you, Russell, and a challenge for me, or if it was just a dig at both of us. Uh. Maybe it's a dig at both of us. Now that I think about it, I, I, I was really cool. honored. I was really honored when you first told me that. I, that and, was but, cool. I thought but, the same thing is I, I would be, I'd be honored to be thought of as Russell Rhodes. Cool. It was my first thought. Then I thought I wasn't, I'm not sure if this was a compliment or not. <laughs> I'm not hundred percent sure either. So, Oh goodness gracious. Oh, well. 
Awesome. Um, so yeah, I, I, I did, you, you sent me a voicemail, you sent me that voicemail and I played it for my family. And, um, let's just say the three women in my household, uh, have not stopped laughing. <laughs> they thought that was hilarious. Absolutely. Hilarious. Well, I, I, I'm taking it. I don't care. I'm, I'm taking it as a praise. Russell mm-hmm. Road school. Let's hit, hit, hit that, hit that level. I'm, I'm taking it. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure today. Russell, and thank you everyone for joining us. And please remember, if you enjoyed this, to share it with a friend, like, comment, and all the good stuff. Thanks for joining.